Hello, my fellow Clement Warriors. This is Matt Myers, and welcome to another episode of Clement Tech Cocktails, where we grab a drink or two with best-in-class Clement Tech founders to learn from their life journeys, dive into bleeding-edge technologies, and have a laugh while we're at it. Clement Tech Cocktails is a Clement Tech Circle, or CTC, production. Are you an accredited investor and want to invest in badass, consumer-focused Clement Tech startups? Are you a climate tech company looking for hardworking people with a sense of humor? Do you want to work in climate tech but don't know where to start? Look no further. Head down the climate tech rabbit hole at climatetechcircle.com. My guest today is Bessie Schwartz, co-founder and CEO of Floodbase, the leading flood mapping platform designed to protect the world's most climate vulnerable communities. And we could really use it here today because I'm staring at my window and we have yet another atmospheric river in Northern California. As co-founder of Floodbase, Bessie has helped build the most actionable, advanced, and cost-effective flood data platform on the market for insurers and the public sector. Prior to founding Floodbase, she earned a Master's of Science from Yale University and founded the consulting arm of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communications. In 2022, Bessie was named to Business Insider's list of 30 top climate leaders. Her opinions and research have been featured by the New York Times, The Hill, Vice, and CNN, and now Climate Tech Cocktails. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Bessie Schwartz, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. It's lovely to have you. And what are we drinking this evening? Um, okay, so this was kind of a tricky one because what I would generally right. say is in a really good old-fashioned, old-fashioned, but I would be uh, like incoherent probably by like 15 minutes into this podcast. So <laughs> no, I figured that's what that's you were not a, That's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm also just a huge fan of uh, local beer here in Brooklyn uh, where yeah. I live. So uh I think I recommended to other half brewing, which is a great brewery, but tonight we're drinking Three's Brewing, uh, which is another great brewery here. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I love it. We we actually I don't know, have we done beer on the show before? Maybe once. Kind of cocktails. It's fine. I like beer too, although I have to admit that I, I don't have a great beer collection. Yeah. At home. I have a very nice liquor collection because of this podcast yeah uh but i was like oh crap i gotta get some beer so i went <laughs> to a uh like a little store that's by where i work out of in the ferry building in san francisco and mm. i went i like picked up they only had one kind of beer and Thanks. it is called calidad beer it says it is quality mexican style cerveza all right yeah, I love I love doing that. Open up the beer. I don't know if people heard that. It was like open up a beer. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> all recording. Like intentionally held it near my mic. I think it's almost like the same thing as if you're chewing gum on set, right? Yeah, that's a less <laughs> satisfying sound. That's actually mm-hmm. a pretty gross sound. Yeah, and you are going to Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, leaving tomorrow, hopefully, weather permitting. Yeah, where in Mexico are you going? Um, going to Mexico City for two or three days, um, which is always really awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, my co-founder lived there for a couple of years, so I spent yeah. a bunch of time there. Yeah. Uh, and then flying to Trujones on the West Coast, a Ooh. nice beach town. Ooh, that sounds great. I do like Mexico City. I went yeah. there a few years ago. Ugh, I don't even know COVID time anymore. It's probably like four or five or whatever it was. We did a little conference there and... Um, I was really impressed. It's like, it felt like 
Shanghai did back hmm. in the probably like the you know early 2000s or something right just like a bunch of new big tall skyscrapers and it's really mm-hmm. affordable where you can get like you know really good meals for cheap and, yeah um yeah the food's amazing the art's amazing yeah. the culture's amazing and it's mm-hmm. just a fascinating city overall like my yeah. my co-founder when she was living there was studying the relationship between uh political corruption and uh drinking water distribution mm-hmm. and how communities have to basically campaign for drinking water access and how they organize uh especially a lot of mexico city increasingly is informal settlement and how you make sure everyone has access in a in a, in a place where it's becoming water scarcity is becoming a major issue oh wow and we're not even talking about lead in the water mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 we're dealing with here yeah. Um, and where are you calling in from today? I'm in Brooklyn. Right, Brooklyn, New York. And where are you from? Um, I'm actually from uh, pretty close outside uh, the city in New Jersey. Oh, boy. Like fourth generation northern New Jersey. Uh, and all in the shadows. It's like an area that's sort of in the shadows of New York City where my mm-hmm. parents grew up and their grandparents grew up, et cetera. So uh, I love it around here. I would expect you to have a thicker accent. Like a New Jersey accent. Yeah. Yeah, it apparently comes out sometimes, but I I can't I I don't know. Okay. So you say this. I'd like a hot dog. I'd like a hot dog? Oh, well you don't sound like you're from uh New York. It's like hot dog. I like a hot a uh, hot dog. Yeah. No? Hot dog. Yeah. It's like I I'd love to hear somebody with a really thick New York accent do that like hot dog, not a hot dog. Right? It's like the AI thing. You know, is it a hot dog or not a hot dog? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. With that, I'm all, like on a, on a weird track today. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'd love to hear, like, let's, I guess, start with your time at Yale. Mm, yeah, sure. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the <laughs> Yale School of Forestry. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. So I went to back to grad school, you know, thinking I was going for a very particular research topic. I was studying actually called cultural ecosystem services, which was a way to attempt to quantify intangible benefits from mm. the environment. Um, but the reality, I was really just looking for new solutions in science and technology and kind of coming back to it that could help advocate for better access to climate adaptation, really, in the communities I had worked with in the U.S. around it. So just really looking for new ways of doing things, given that the systems I had been using, the tools, especially in politics and policy prior to school, just like clearly were not going to work for the size of the problem and the speed of the problem. And I met my co-founder day one of orientation. I actually came to orientation two weeks late because for some reason, my school had a three-week orientation, which is just bonkers. So I just skipped mm-hmm. those two weeks. And uh, my co-founder and I just, we were the first person I met, we became roommates and we started talking about our various experiences. Hers had been doing disaster relief work internationally for the couple of years prior. She came back to grad school to look for new solutions to scale the types of solutions she had been building internationally. And in, that was over 10 years ago now. And mm-hmm. essentially we just haven't stopped trying to solve the problems yeah. we'd seen together. Yeah. What were you working on in regards, you said you were working on adaptation in the U.S. 
prior to grad school? Like, what, what were you doing in regards to adaptation in the U.S.? Because I think adaptation now is a yeah becoming a hot topic. Mm-hmm. Back then, I'm sure it fell on a, quite a few deaf ears. Yeah, for sure. We should definitely talk about, I think, the changes in perspective around adaptation or really just even the understanding of what it means to yeah. Let's do that. this crisis. Yeah, way back then, I actually got my career started as a uh, political grassroots organizer in some of the most climate vulnerable places in this country and in the U.S. So started working with young people in coastal Florida, mm-hmm. many of which knew they were going to have to leave where their family had been for generations. Worked with low-income farming communities in the Midwest, uh, low-income communities on the, the West Coast, um, and many of whom just knew that they didn't have the resources to prepare for the disasters, whether there were hurricanes and oncoming sea level rise in, in Florida, or just a slower disaster that was you know, droughts, agricultural stresses on agriculture, um, while simultaneously communities being economically devastated. And we were really working to figure out policies that would help with transitions for these communities. And it was very clear that there was not the types of tools to communicate and kind of get the power that they needed in order to uh, sustainably put real policies in, in place for them. Why is that? What was missing? You know, the way, there's a variety of things that are, are missing. The, um, the one that we work on at Cloud Street right now is really financing, so access mm-hmm. to capital in order to do anything you need, whether it is bouncing back after a disaster, so replanting, uh, restocking inventory, or relocating, or planning your community zoning. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's a whole variety of types of solutions. And so I, the core argument that I realized back then is that there just was not really, I think, two key things that enable, that really require big societal shifts. The first is a way to really understand the size of the problem. So just to communicate it um, in the way that makes sense. So um, this can be really difficult with climate change because in many ways it is an averted loss when it comes to extreme weather. So if we take this action, this community won't be devastated or we relocate them or we build this uh, particular Mm. um, protections. And then the second is um, a real solutions that we can put in place. So actual technologies, political policies that we can see actually work, financing um, instruments. And really, I think over the course of my career, we've seen a lot of real change along both of those kind of vectors that I think society needs in order to implement new new changes. And I've just been thrilled really in the last couple of years with how much real investment is going into creating and making cost-effective viable solutions around climate change, including adaptation and other types of mitigation. And I actually think that investment in solution from the private sector is really spurring the types of political will that we were missing when I started my career. Mm -hmm. And not to, we might jump around here because I'm asking this question, but what, what type of investments might we see on the adaptation side? Right, because I think that a lot of people listening, including myself, who I've yeah. I dug a little bit into adaptation yeah. over the past year or so, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that hey, this is going to happen. Yep. What are we going to do? And yeah. what am I and you know my fiance or family going to do? 
you know, our, our, our baby puppy, right? What is, what is Artie McFly going to do, right? When, when, <laughs> when we need to adapt to climate change. And so it's still a bit of a puzzle to me. It's like, oh, are we going to move in mass to different parts when we're talking yeah. about where we are currently located in the United States of America and or are certain areas of the country going to build new infrastructure to, you know, yeah. adapt to rising sea levels, da, 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 da. But kind of like, what are some of the investments that you're already seeing and projecting around adaptation? Yeah. So many life changes for you, Matt. <laughs> what we got to protect. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. So let me start with the fact that adaptation has gotten less attention around landscape of climate solutions and the way people think about the crisis. Yeah. And it's all been confusing to me because in many ways, I think adaptation is seen as a sort of we're giving up and now solving it. And the reality is actually, in my mind, quite the opposite. Adaptation, I think, is far more hopeful than some of these important but pretty long shot solutions that we're saying are like are going to reverse climate change or, you know, in 50 years from now, we'll get all of our energy from this potentially this new source and uh, that will change things. That's stuff we need to work on. But what we're talking about with adaptation is really surviving the next 10 years, maybe 20 years. So no matter what we, how much we avert greenhouse gases now, if we were to stop all greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, the planet would continue to warm for something like 10 years. Uh, we're seeing hotter, we hotter weather, more storms, all of that stuff. So what we're really talking about is surviving this next 10 years, which is just a necessity. But then at the same time, adaptation to your question, uses the solutions we have today in order to survive. So um, we've actually, as a planet, seen much more extreme weather. Everybody knows that, but we have not seen increases in death as the actual events have gotten worse mm. and bigger. So in fact, our ability to just absorb this increased stress and pressure from extreme events our ability to absorb it has gone up at the same time. We're obviously concerned about tipping points around our ability to absorb this, but we have the tools today to, to handle it. And a lot of those are things like just doing easy things, like doing uh, smarter zoning, uh, like doing even small or big infrastructure changes, um, like requiring fortified houses or, or commercial areas, um, there's things like early warning or better search and rescue. Um, so lots of tools there. And what's interesting about kind of Cloud to Street and our work over really the last 10 years almost is that um, we have realized that there's so many solutions we have now, and it's a matter of investing in them that we realized was the actual barrier to us adapting to, to, to climate change, meaning meeting the need with the money required at the time, whether it's in making major investments, uh, infrastructure investments, uh, when you need to be able to get have the credit worthiness to go do that, um, which is a barrier in a lot of developing countries, or just having capital immediately after some kind of event hits so that you as an individual can bounce back or, or as a business. So I have started to see the adaptation problem largely as a finance problem, or how do we distribute capital to the solutions that we have today across, I have to say, a myriad of things that we know how to do already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
again, jumping around, but from my understanding is, you know, you noted that you all been at this for a while, which is great, you know, uh, almost a decade. And from my understanding, you began in, for lack of better terminology, developing countries or emerging economies sometimes and, um, and try to work on these problems. Mm. And so uh, what, what was that experience like, especially in Africa? And uh, on top of that, what might solutions look like mm. there that are effective yeah. versus solutions that we need here in the United States? Yeah, I think there are different versions of the same thing. So I'll sort of say this or maybe start from the beginning. So Cloud Street is a really just a different way of understanding uh, flooding primarily as a disaster. So we use all uh, observation-based technology in order to just monitor floods as they're happening and directly observing them um, anywhere in the world at any moment. We also look back in time at the observed flood risk, not the simulated models that are really based on ground equipment and is largely missing in most of the world, including the most parts of the U.S. We actually just watch them as they have happened, and that enables us to more accurately predict, especially a, a near future uh, flooding. So it's a very different way of looking at floods. And one real advantage of it is that it is equally accurate in uh, in the Midwest or in Florida as it is in Nigeria or Pakistan, where there were major floods this summer. So because that is the nature of the technology, we were first really approached by developing country governments that didn't have a lot of ground equipment on the ground or maybe didn't have any ground equipment in order to create highly accurate flood maps like we might have, have here. Uh, so the our first customers, we, originally the science was funded by research grants from Google for Beth and I to, to develop it out. Uh, and then we just started getting approached uh, by the World Bank or and, and the UN to say things like, listen, in the first case, 5,000 people had died in a single flood event in northern India. And the World Bank came to us a year later to say, we uh, are looking to do major investments to recover the state in India. But a year later, we still don't have new flood maps because they had to rebuild all the ground equipment, collect data, and then rerun the models. And they said, could you help us out with a just a risk assessment all remotely um, in the meantime? Uh, and that was the first project that we we did. And then since then, basically word of mouth spread through uh, the World Bank and then others and more primarily national disaster management agencies started getting on the system because they could have accurate data at, for the full disaster cycle right away. So it's really just who came onto the platform first. But at the same time, we were always getting approached um, by sort of, in many ways, the other end of the, the economy, these really large insurers and reinsurers who were saying similar stuff that the governments were. We've never had highly accurate data in many of these locations around the world and therefore haven't been able to offer insurance products there because we don't have enough data to accurately price and we don't have the ground presence to go adjust damages when we've seen them. But with our platform, same thing the governments are using, they can both price it with our historical records and trigger the payouts based on 
are monitoring detection of, of floods happening. So what's interesting is the same platform, in many ways, it's the same problem. The governments need the data to do search and rescue, they do zoning, they relocate communities, and then the insurers who want to offer capital for many of those same things uh, to happen. So we are often working with both in the same uh, location. Mm. And so from the earlier days, mm -hmm. what are the outcomes from that work that you see today? Oh, so, so many things. So I think one of the biggest realizations, I'll give you a couple of examples, but one of the biggest realizations was really how much financing was standing in the way of these governments doing what we they needed to do. So we've worked now with about 32, primarily, again, national disaster management agencies, so like the FEMAs yeah. um, of uh, other countries. And uh, you would, at first they were saying, we don't have the data that we need to either make investments that we're getting post an event or just do basic search and rescue. Know what like, literally countries are coming to saying, takes us a few weeks to know about an event enough to declare a national disaster and, mm -hmm. and send search and rescue out there or, or do aid. We have not dissimilar re reaction times here in the US in many cases. So they're coming up to us with that. And you'd think, oh, this is an information problem. I will then set up a system for this country where we're monitoring floods on any given day, warning them about floods, and that will solve the problem. Then they'll go, uh, they'll go be able to do search and rescue and these various activities. And it became like time and time again, we had ministers of social affairs, ministers of finance, the folks heading the Met offices, just saying, this is great. In some cases, they would look at the system and say, I can see right now, and like I'd be sitting there in the office of the mm -hmm. department or and they'd say, we can see right now that there's an event happening or clearly that community should not be there. With what extra money do you expect us to go take all of this action? Mm -hmm. Where are we going to go get the financing to, to do all the things we can now see mm -hmm. pretty clearly that we need to do? And so that realization of the sort of limits of our ability to kind of affect the change that we wanted to, and you're sort of sitting with these folks in the country saying, we're here to help. We're all here for the same problem. We need access to capital to just make this, make this possible. And in many cases, we're talking about, you know, uh, countries or places or, or types of risks that just don't have access to the same, like the, the um, borrowing rates of a country like a, like a Nigeria or the Congo or Barbados and places that we've worked are just much, much higher in order to take the kinds of, to adapt to climate change like we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so the borrowing rates are high. Also, is it, is it, they're not able to unlock the capital. Is it because the insurers are uncertain about whether they'll rebuild in an area which will just get flooded again? Is that mm -hmm. the primary concern? <laughs> that's definitely certainly that that's a huge concern I'd say in the the developed world. We have a huge problem with that in the U.S. The main problem is just having the information from the carrier for the insurer side, having the information to know what is a palatable risk for them or not, and then having the operations to say, okay, a payable event has happened. So we do a form of insurance called parametric insurance where you don't use the person with the clipboard, the adjuster who goes to the property, assesses damage and says, you know, you're owed this much uh, from your, your policy. 
Instead, the policy payout is triggered by some data proxy saying an event has happened. So in our case, a major flood has happened on your farm or you know, in a major event has happened in this country, and that would automatically trigger the payout for whomever it is, whether it's the government who holds the policy, the farmer, the individual, the business, et cetera. So it makes it suddenly available, flood insurance accessible to anywhere and people with many different types of flood risk because we now have the insight and the data that they need in order to make those kinds of bets that they make as insurers. Yeah. And so when there's a payout triggered for a government, mm-hmm. where does that money go? Is it going into infrastructure? Like where's it going? Yeah. I mean, so there's a couple of answers to that question. So uh, it can go into a variety of different things. And, and this is all the policy can be structured in a, a couple of different ways. But one of the overall, I think, advantages of parametric insurance is that really the the buyer can, the, the policyholder can decide what they want to do with it. Uh, so it's not like, you know, if you buy flood insurance here in the U.S., it's like, you know, basement flood damage. It's very specific. You can use that money to basically repair this particular property. When it's parametric insurance, because it's these very relatively simple transactions, if an event happens, we will just give you money and you can use that to repair your home. You can use that to build a different home. You can use that to start a business. You can use that to relocate. You can actually use it generally for whatever you want. So it's much more open, but the government, so the generally the, the, the national government parametric insurance policies actually have become very popular and they're structured generally in a couple of different uh, ways. So sometimes they come in the form of debt relief. So an event happens, you actually just don't have to pay back the debt on your sovereign loan. They'll happen. There's a, um, a very cool um, company called African Risk Capacity uh, that is a risk pool for African uh, national governments. And they have a disaster response plan that you have to develop ahead of time before buying the policy. And essentially, you'll use the money mm-hmm. to take this kind of uh, particular action. But those are really just two examples of, of many. Yeah, I just have in my head, I was thinking about like, okay, as natural disasters, flooding being Mm -hmm. one of the more prominent ones that will occur over the next 10 to 20 years or longer, what happens when the costs of the natural disasters continue to increase, Mm -hmm. right? Then you've got countries, especially those that are developing nations that are having to pay I assume a higher and higher rate, right? Um, and is there some maybe some kind of tipping point where they realize that uh, our rates are so high because we're rebuild we're not rebuilding as well as we should, or we're not putting the capital mm-hmm. in the plate, directing it towards the the types of recovery resources that we should. And I guess there will have to be a suite of tools to make suggestions for them to take certain actions that would hopefully reduce their rates or limit the increase in rates over time because of what's going to happen. Like that's just what's been circling in my mind. Yeah, um, definitely. So it's really two things about this. So the first is that it's very clear from the research that countries of any kind, developing countries or, or developed countries without a significant 
a private insurance layer of the economy will be significant significantly vulnerable to a disaster uh, in terms of their GDP progress. So what I mean by that is that Munich Re and the World Bank have some research from a couple of years ago that basically looked at countries that have a robust insurance industry at about 10 or 20 years after a disaster and those that don't. And the difference is incredibly stark. So if you have insurance, a big event will hit, there'll be a slight dip. You'll continue on the GDP growth path that you were before. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, basically you can get set back uh, by uh, a generation. And you see this in developing countries that don't have this. And you know, kids are taken out of school, uh, businesses get can't recover, uh, and the economy is set back significantly. You can't have that uh, influx of capital um, when you need it. So. The first thing is that overall, we know we need this kind of capital to be matched at a moment of a disaster. And as there's more extreme events in different places around the world, we really need to balance that risk across different geographies and then different types of risks. So get as much more uncorrelated risk into the system as possible, and this will acquire some new types of financial instruments. The second part of your uh, question is that insurance, or at least private insurance, is um, not the only solution. So just like I think everyone's really come to understand that we need a multiple types of energy on the grid, like all, it's not going to, we're not going to be able to shift everything from a, you know, a carbon intensive economy to all solar or all wind or all geothermal, et cetera. We all, I think, understand the problem enough to know it's really a patchwork of solutions here. Same thing with adaptation, um, whether it's flood, which is, by the way, more than half of all uh, exposure to a natural disaster is floods. Um, but whether it's floods or any other extreme event, it's going to be a combination of things. So in some cases, in places where folks, let's say just even in the U.S., are um, don't are low income in very vulnerable places, private insurance probably doesn't make sense. The cost of actual risk of living there, of of you know paying for the risk of living in this location, probably just does not make sense. And at that point, mm-hmm. helping with facilitating migration in a way that is equitable and supportive just makes sense. It's super costly, but it's way less than the cost that we'll see in this country if we don't help mm-hmm. relocate out. You know, in my opinion, as Claude Street, if you want to, you know, continue to build some mansions in super expensive places in the in the country, you know, sure, go ahead, pay for the, you know, the real cost in, of um, living there, and that should be required uh, as part of, you know, also sustaining the infrastructure of the mansions and the highly vulnerable places. So there's, I think, a patchwork of solutions that will end up um, creating not just the resilience but just a livable in mm. societies in all kinds of countries. Mm. So then when we're talking about the U.S., because you brought the U.S., well, are we looking at it, you're saying is it, we're looking at it like governments, perhaps not even federal, but, you know, local mm-hmm. and regional governments are looking at this insurance perhaps to mm-hmm. support those who are, let's just say, more vulnerable yeah. and located in vulnerable areas. And and not kind of like, okay, yeah, if you're going to build a McMansion, you know, on the Florida coastline, you do you. Here's the insurance rate for that. It's going to go up and, oh, I'm sure it'll be more than you can, than the house is itself at a certain point. But if that's what you want to do, that's your, 
That's your own prerogative, you know? It's, this is America. Do what you want if you can afford it. Whereas, I guess, like, this type of insurance is good for, hey, somebody might not have a choice. That's where they grew up. They can't afford to move. And so if something cataclysmic happens in regards to flooding, then the local or regional government can, you know, activate this insurance to help relocate and or rebuild for those who are most vulnerable. Is that what we're looking at? It's not what's happening now, I would say, largely mm. across the country. But some sort of holistic vision, more intentional planning like that is what is required. So the interesting thing is you said something like, oh, this is America, like you can go live where you want. The reality is flood insurance in the U.S. is largely a public insurance market. Yes. And so it's, I think it's, it's fascinating because it often is um, kind of counter to how you think of this country generally thinks about insurance, but almost all flood insurance, which is largely required for people who are deemed inside of the 100-year uh, flood zone using FEMA maps, um, is required to have insurance, and then FEMA will provide that, the government will provide mm -hmm. that insurance. And it started as, I think, arguably a, a really smart uh, program, but in the face of climate change, where risk is changing much faster, uh, events uh, are getting, hurricanes are getting much, much wetter, becoming much more damaging and more frequent, this model just, um, I think many folks would, would argue, really needs to change. I'm, I'm excited about some of the changes that FEMA is starting to work on now mm -hmm. uh, around this. Mm -hmm. In case somebody was drinking and they didn't pick that up, <laughs> i.e., uh, you know, taxpayers in the United States are essentially on the hook for a lot of the flooding damage that has happened and will happen. And so what we're looking at is, okay, can we find private insurance solutions that can help reduce our exposure as a country, as, a ta as taxpayers, um, to flooding that is already occurring and will likely get worse? Yeah. So that is more or less the case. The FEMA flood insurance program actually used to be profitable. So it was the case where, you know, you, you pay for these, the, the premiums, they're just heavily yeah. subsidized, but they were reasonably, you know, they were priced. And so, you know, FEMA was able to use the premiums to cover the costs. That really started to change after, I'd say about like five, maybe seven years ago or so, when we really just got hit, started getting hit with really big disasters uh, and needing basically Congress to bail out FEMA about, about this program in order to, to keep it going. But because the premiums are so deeply subsidized and because the insurance industry in the U.S., the catastrophe insurance industry, is really going through, I think, a major evolution and some would argue a crisis after especially the use of FEMA and looking at Florida, we're going to probably become even more reliant on the public insurance that's subsidized and therefore not accurately providing a picture of risk in the places that you're you know, buying this insurance for. Mm. Okay. And I want to jump back to outside of the United States really quick, because I have some notes yeah. here and you brought up Barbados mm. um, as something you wanted to, to discuss. So, uh, because this just happened recently at COP27. Mm -hmm. So what's the Bridgetown Initiative? Who is Minister Mia Motley? Why does this matter? Yeah, so Minister Mia Lavatli is, I think, arguably the coolest person on earth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, Sorry, that's another beer opening. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, wow. <laughs> it looks exactly like the old beer, but now it's full. So um, the prime minister there, um, I think, really took a look at what I was talking about earlier about how the just financing and the capital available to some of the countries that are most vulnerable to climate change and need to adapt to change their um, planning around it and their response needs to become bigger to these events, have less access to capital than most of the world. And I was just looking at how, mm. you know, Barbados and the, the, the Caribbean overall, it's almost, um, their debt is almost 100% um, GDP. So they're borrowing their creditworthiness is just not what they need in order yeah. to, to prepare. And so the Bridgetown agenda is really a way to relook at global financing that was set up kind of post-World War II, sort of the, you know, the, the World Bank uh, system, uh, and rethink what kind of access to capital countries have as they need to adapt. Motley has also done, I think, a pretty interesting thing is it, she restructured financing for, for Barbados largely as her one of her first things that she did. And in that position, the Bridgetown Initiative is really her taking that model and trying to influence global finance in general. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also buried in all of that one really interesting element of the loans that she's now getting, which is um, extreme weather in, in the case of Barbados, hurricane clauses so-called, where you do this sort of borrowing, in many cases, borrowing in order to adapt to increased extreme events. If one of these extreme events happens during the course of paying back your loan, you would then have the loan relieved in full or in part. So you don't have to choose then between responding to this disaster that's happened and repaying the loan that was to prepare for the disasters coming um, already. And so I think these so-called sort of hurricane clauses or these sort of catastrophe event clauses should just get built into a lot of loan um, and debt structures that we're putting in place, not just because it's kind of fair and, and, and good policies, but because that I think is what we need to avoid some kind of climate debt bubble that could look very similar to the mm-hmm. financial crisis from mm-hmm. whatever uh, over a decade ago. Yeah. And who's providing the capital for those loans, like in Barbados's case? Yeah, so I think a decent amount of the loans are World Bank, um, IMF, and then that gets uh, repay or, or um, refinanced with uh, private sovereign mm-hmm. debt uh, loan mm-hmm. holders. And is the argument or the case that if you don't take this deal, then you're likely unlikely to pay back anything? Because because the damage will be so severe, the interest rates are, are mm-hmm. you know unsustainable, right? The debt payments are unsustainable. So we're not going to be able to pay you back. We're going to have to claim bankruptcy as as a nation, and so you're not going to get any of that money back. Is that is that like kind of the argument? You mean you mean that the the like the loan providers would then not get. Right, right. Barbados is kind of like, you know, these interest rates are so insane that we wouldn't be able to pay our our interest payments, you know, and then we'd effectively have to go bankrupt. And so you're not going to see a dime. So why don't we meet in the middle? So if a cataclysmic event does happen in the midst of us adapting, then we're not, we don't have, maybe we get these, these payments uh, paused. 
mm-hmm. for a bit for some yeah. years while we recover is that kind of like hey we'll, we'll meet you in the middle of the road so that actually you will you will get your money back is that like the blunt case so they can be structured in a in a couple of different ways and i think the interest reasonable interest rates is really one component of it and you can negotiate that separately and then having some debt relief mechanisms built into um, loans, whatever the financial instrument, whereas an event happens and it's you don't have to pay it back or you don't have to or you can pay it back more slowly or, or something like that. It triggers mm-hmm. some kind of change in recognition, like uh, student loans being frozen during the pandemic, for instance, like something like that with, you know, the idea that, you know, you could otherwise just have uh, governments or or you know businesses in the U.S. or whomever. Like any, we've done. Potter Street has powered debt relief programs that look like an insurance, where an insurer mm-hmm. reinsurer is actually behind that in the end for a variety of types of companies or um, individual loan holders. But the even the opposite would be that you just don't pay back your loan; you go into into default. And in the case of the countries, you know, there's a long history of the World Bank then, you know, aggressively getting very involved in the country when that happens, Mm -hmm. or banks just having uh, all these underwater loans on their on their books then. And Mm -hmm. they're certainly not interested in that. And I think um, banks are really waking up to this. And I think we're many of the first kind of private pioneers of taking of, of climate finance by realizing just how vulnerable their own portfolios are today with loans that they had already originated. And so I think debt relief mechanisms, which either can be done in the form of insurance that's offered to the loan holder, where you can buy some kind of subsidy on top of it, or just an increased cost of the loan itself. But, you know, in general, I see these kinds of financial instruments as going pretty widespread throughout the economy. It would look just like when you buy a plane ticket and you get that little checkbox that says you want up for five bucks like i'm flying out for vacation tomorrow and there's a good chance that that the weather in new york is not going to be good enough and that will get canceled yeah so you just check a little box and says for you know a couple bucks do you want to get insurance on this and i actually think in a much more much uh less predictable world we're going to just need those kinds of things in order Mm -hmm. to you know maintain stability with the economy whether you're the barbados government or you're me trying to fly out to my vacation mm. tomorrow. Mm. It's just an added cost mm-hmm. that we're building into our lives that will be spread out over time. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that's so, right. So um, you mentioned Nigeria. What happened in Nigeria in October? I think most of us are so, in the United States, are so focused on Elon and what he's tweeted latest <laughs> or, uh, you know, Ukraine or... Mm-hmm. whatever Trump is, you know, tweeting around his NFTs. Like we're not, we're, we're, we're missing the boat on some of the things that are really important that are happening around the world. So what happened in Nigeria? Yeah, I think Nigeria is one of the big floods from this year that didn't get nearly enough attention. There have been major floods across Africa this year. And in Nigeria, they were by far the deadliest with hundreds of people um, dying. Just major floods on, on the you know you know close to what was happening arguably in um, Australia you know Ian was also a huge event and mm-hmm. and Pakistan was a huge event like these things are happening 
all all over in mm -hmm. different places and different countries have different abilities to absorb them. But you know, what I think is interesting is that, you know, the floods in Nigeria, while big, were pretty uncorrelated with some of these other events that I just mentioned. And there's a way where we actually just transfer the risk between locations. So you actually make everybody more resilient by having it spread out across the whole global pool. Mm. Okay, so I want to um, backtrack just a second here and to get a little bit better of an idea of you as a person. Mm. <laughs> um, we usually start that way, but I, I just kind of, you know, rambled, I think. Yeah. But um, what what drives you? Like, I, I think the your passion around helping communities organize around uh, climate change and climate adaptation is very clear, right? It's like the, the, the passion is coming through on the other end. <laughs> and so where does that come from? Because it, there, there must be a source because you've been doing this for such a long time, uh, pretty much your, your entire, let's say, professional career and your studies. Mm -hmm. So where, where, what's, the, what's the source of that energy, that drive? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty simple. I've just long thought that climate change and the climate crisis was the biggest thing facing humanity. And I think, you know, I went to kind of work on it first in, as I mentioned, in coastal Florida and working with, I was, you know, pretty young and working with people who are basically my, my age and real knew that they were going to have to leave. And we were doing, I think, a lot of strong political work. And this is back um, you know, during like the Obama hope era. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of, I think, promises about changing um, society at, at large. And what's been really interesting about that is I've tried starting back with you know, politics and more of a grassroots approach to things, have tried a variety of ways of thinking about this major crisis that's sort of always looming in the background of my life and in my career, whether it's First with politics and then thinking, okay, it's time to go into sort of science and technology. And it's really about, it's about sort of proving and, and communicating the science. And that's, that's what will solve this. And then realizing, okay, it's, it's, that's, that's not it. We don't need more facts about climate change. Uh, we need sort of action to support people on the ground and then going sort of providing the data on the ground to governments and saying, actually, without capital, you're not going to be able to do it. And now in the last couple of years, the massive investments towards climate, a lot of it for um, climate mitigation, but increasingly towards adaptation. And the real conclusion around all of this, which you can see in from the very first communities I was working with in Florida, across that you really do need all of these elements to come together. You need the policy and you need the political will for which really my first you need the technology and things like um cloud to street and our flood data layer and many other colleague climate tech colleagues you need the finance and you need the financial instrument on top of our technology um in order to get money to the places in the right way you need all of these elements uh and i think you know to many in many ways the first part of my career was filled with a lot of um, pessimism and in many ways, fear. You work with communities that and thinking, okay, we have, we're not making any progress here yeah. and be really daunted by it and how much, despite it being 
the biggest crisis humanity has faced, not seeing that much change for a lot of my career. And then in the last couple of years, really seeing so much movement. I mean, the price of of clean energy has gone down just so much faster than I, I really thought it was when I was you know, earlier in my career. And then the attention on it from large financial instruments, it's just been really exciting. And I think the second, I wouldn't say second half of my career, but the, the next portion of my career um, and working on this problem, um, I think is filled with a lot more optimism and and um, a lot more momentum around what we're able to do. So I think I have those early experiences on the ground that I think were actually fairly desperate um, in the back of my head mm-hmm. when then going to places all around the world. And we do work here in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. with private and, and public. Um, and so it's, it's mm-hmm. really fascinating to work with. Folks who look a lot like those folks I worked with originally, but all over the world. Hmm. So those early conversations with folks in Florida really stuck with you and drove you. You're like, I'm going to figure out how to help these folks so that the worst case scenario doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And when speaking with Marty, he suggested that I ask you about your mom. Interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because he said, quote, Bessie's mom is a force of nature, unquote. Yeah, this is the great uh, Marty Schneider, who's been a long kind of advisor and, and supporter of mine. And um, I guess as, as a, a, a fan of my, my mom. So there's definitely a long lineage of my family of strong women. Like I, I remember when you know, I was very young and people first told me about, you know, what like sexism is or misogyny. And I was like, Wait, that doesn't make sense to me. Women are the powerful ones. It's like the men we need to really watch out for because just the female figures in my in my family are so powerful. So my my mom runs my uh, family business. She took over from my grandfather, um, and it's the third. It's it's in roof cement. It is the third most male dominated industry. So roofing Oof. is the third most male dominated yeah. industry uh, in the in the country. She is the CEO. It's the um, one of the, I think, only like still family-owned businesses, and it's a huge name in this in this industry. And she's just a big kind of in this niche. She's a such a leader in it. And like, just picture this: like, a company has a bunch of factories. She goes in and a couple of years ago really <laughs> instituted that the um, folks in the factory stretch at different points before work in order to just help maintain it. And this is all part of paid paid work there. She would go in and lead stretching. She's, <laughs> she's now in her late late 60s. Feels like factor. And they love, like she goes around and high fives everybody and feels really <laughs> close to everybody within the office. So there's a factory sort of attached to her office as part of it. Yeah, and I think I've just been always really um, inspired by her and, and my grandmother who basically until she passed away was like, going to board meetings and helping to run the same business that my mom now run in like suits, little skirt suits that like women of that generation and like huge heels, like uh-huh. until like days before she passed away. And I think just like these images of powerful women in my life. And I mean, in my, in my family, like really just helps give you a sense of not just like what you can do, but a, a sort of a responsibility to make a, the kind of impact that you want to. And there's never been any kind of pressure for me and my family to do anything in particular, but in fact, to uh, really build something or drive some kind of 
change along the lines of what you believe in. And climate change has obviously been the thing I've been focused on my entire career and have been pretty intent on so- helping to solve this crisis in you know one particular one particular way. And I, you know, I do imagine Marty's right that like part of that comes from being inspired by the women in my family. Mm-hmm. And does your mom call you to scratch? <laughs> Call me to stretch. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. Right. I mean, my mom saw, seriously, like late sexy, still beating me in mountain biking, like always has. Like, I'd be like, Mom, please slow down. And remember, like, an 11 year old being like, Mom, slow down. Like, I can't mountain bike up this. Or, like, I don't want to jump off this cliff, please. And uh, yeah, she's still basking me in a lot of activities. Wow. Yeah. And Marty said one other thing that he wanted me to state during our conversation. He wanted me to say that you're a little scary in a good way. That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think he means by that? Yeah, I honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, I've never beat him at arm wrestling. (laughs) I've never beat him in a chess game. Um, I guess I'll take that as like the the board meetings are um, exhilarating that he Mm. participates in. Yeah. Have you two arm wrestled? Is that a thing? Mm -mm. No, no. No. I'm pretty good at arm wrestling. I have to say I'm a rock climber. So I've like have like decent upper body strength. So I can play. I, I have a request then next board meeting i'm guess is he is he a board member and an observer yes yeah, yeah. so next board meeting <laughs> you can just go marty you want to see something a little scary yeah yeah let's yeah. arm wrestle yeah and, and actually like you know challenge him uh to an arm wrestling competition mm-hmm. in the board meeting yeah yeah and i can be like okay last order of business we have <laughs> <laughs> and just switch to the like miscellaneous business slide. <laughs> and so, um, speaking favorite. of which, let's give you know we have about ten more minutes here, five to ten more minutes, and you know we're getting to this at the end. But I think it's a good place to kind of touch upon this and then and mm-hmm. then reach our arc. But where is it you see your company in five to ten years? Like, you know, we're, we're talking about this 10 to 20 year mark of really troubling mm-hmm. um, environmental events happening all yeah. around the world. So where, where do you see Cloud to Street in like in five to 10 years? Let's say even like 10. Yep. Another 10. It'll be 20 years of doing this. You'd be like, geez, please. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I hope I'm on a, on a beach that isn't flooded. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we've been working, my co-founder have been working on the science for 10 years, and we've had basically governments asking us to use the platform since then. Um, And then we started working about two years on insurance, which is when we took VC funding two years ago. So it's been an interesting sort of ride from there. Yeah, if I look out over the next couple of years, what we've really set our eyes on is to enabling climate finance of a variety of kinds. So we think in order to survive the next 10 years, we're going to need to match the crisis with capital that people, businesses, entire governments need to adapt. So over the next two years, that means creating largely from a 
non-existent or a very small place, the parametric flood insurance market at large scale. Mm-hmm. Some very impressive companies, some existing um, uh, products out there for flood parametric insurance. But we really think the you know, billions and billions of dollars that are exposed to floods on any given year and are 75% not covered by insurance need to be covered within the next couple of years. And we um, will plan to be a significant portion of that, meaning insurance for people in the vast majority of the world or people in, in the U.S. having access to capital, having access to capital right after the disaster transacted on top of the flood monitoring layer that we have everywhere in the world. So that's sort of the first phase, but really the reality is lots of type of uh, climate adaptation finance from the loss and damage courts that were um, really just uh, sort of incepted in a big way at COP to debt relief and credit uh, that we were talking about a little bit earlier. Lots of these types of financial instruments needs some kind of arbiter of whether or not the event has happened in an objective, observable way, mm-hmm. and really providing that day the layer and enabling all kinds of financial transaction to meet the crisis with the capital it needs is the vision that we uh, hope to enable at Cloud to Street. Mm. And one last thing that I still don't have a clear vision of, I'm getting there. I think it's important. We touched upon, okay, we're helping spread these costs over time. So it's just going to be a marginal increase in the cost of living for the average person, which will depend on where you live. In the next 10 years, what are we looking at? Can we provide like a ballpark financial estimate? Like, okay, is this going to be so significant that it's going to really slow down our economies and or drive inflation, right? Because what, what you're saying is you're going to help yeah. 75% of what is an insured become insured, which means that costs are going to go up because we got to pay for insurance that yeah. that didn't exist before. But it's a good thing that we're doing it because otherwise the costs would be higher in a shorter period, period of time. So... Like what? What are we looking at here? Like, if you yeah. take out your crystal ball, you know what? What <laughs> impact is, is that? Is that going to have have on us? Yeah, yeah. So it's a pretty hard number to put into one number, but very back of the envelope says it's going to be about a trillion dollars a year uh, to adapt um, wow. the, the kind of impact we have today. Nothing. Like, I mean, not nothing. Clearly, um, but. When it when you so little compared to the actual problem here, and this is if mm-hmm. we keep it basically at the level that we have right. over the next 10 years. When you think about that amount of money compared to how much it would cost if we don't address right. the problem, both mitigating it, or if we don't put prevention in place to uh, increase our ability to absorb this, it would be so much higher um, than that. So that is a really back of the envelope um, number that largely comes from the World Bank um, estimates. And the other thing is, if you if you look at how we attempt to address retroactively or in response to disasters today, it just by no means meets, meets mm. the amount of loss uh, that's mm. that's happening. Interesting. I It's going to be fascinating to, like, given you all are successful, it's going to be fascinating to see the political ramifications of this right because it's like hey this is the smart 
financial economic decision to make, right? You're paying upfront so that, you know, at the end of the day, the cost is a lot less, but there's still going to be that, that financial pain that's being experienced from something that hasn't happened yet. Whereas, you know, you have the data, lots of smart folks have the data and they're making data-driven decisions. At the same time, there could be some some political blowback that that won't necessarily be directly tied to it, you know, uh, up front, but will ultimately be driven by it. Yeah. I mean, I think that is the case if we don't do it well. Um, yeah. But I think the, the financial cost of that's coming is already pretty well understood or it, it, it's folks get it. Like you look at what happened in Ian in the U S and how many insurers, not just pull out every time there's a large event um, in the Southeast in the U S but the crisis of the insurance industry is arguably in now and what that is going to do to the uh, mortgage mortgages in that area as well like i think folks kind of get that the moment is here that we're kind of teetering on the edge and this is true if you're going to try to get a home you're trying to get a loan now or if you're uh an insurer in the industry and so you know it, it is i guess a little bit of financial pain if you were to just kind of look at it in a really simplistic way but if you look at the kind of reality of how much uncertainty there is in the financial system and I mean, you can just think about like 2008 and how we realized that bad financial products can lead to an immense amount of pain. I think that is in people's memory when they're looking at what's going on now around mm-hmm. climate disasters. I don't think it leads to the same. I think on a one-on basis, perhaps it, it can lead to some kind of political difficulty and, and barriers, but I think we are finding the momentum. And I mean, I'll just say that the Bridgetown Initiative, this the the or uh, agenda, the a program that I was mentioning earlier from from PM Motley in Barbados that just caught on really rapidly at mm-hmm. COP. Like you'd think, like overhauling in many ways the um, the international development financing mechanisms would be controversial to you know the head of the World Bank. They joined on and demonstrated support um, within you know, uh, within the matter of, of two two weeks over yeah. the course of it. So I definitely think tides are turning because of the, a recognition that kind of the status quo is just not going to work. And um, I don't necessarily think that this is going to be some kind of massive, huge financial burden that is different. I actually think the burden people are getting of paying a little bit more on your you know, airplane ticket in the form of insurance, the equivalent of doing that across the economy is just necessary to stave off the kind of... Um, disasters we see in certain places. Mm. Okay, so let's get to the rapid fire portion of this conversation. I'm going to add one question, but you'll ask first. Uh-oh. In, in the United States of Uh-oh. America, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's do it. Where Having the data that you have, um, again, taking out your crystal ball, mm. what are three, mm. let's just say we could say like states of the country or three yeah. Areas of the country that I should consider moving to. Oh, consider moving to. Right. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, um, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I, I look a lot more places not to go to. So this is really throwing me yeah. off. But it, yeah, it'd be parts of um, the 
Northeast or, or Midwest. The thing I will say that is different is that a lot of the increased flood risk has not come from increased flooding or the actual hazard or peril. It has come from development inside of known floodplains. That's where arguably most of the increase of loss came from. So we just know where not to go and we're going there. And so I'd say places where people are building, it's like not, it's not rocket science, you know, where not to go. In mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Perfect. Um, so what are three books that have greatly impacted the way that you approach life and or do business? Oh, great. I'm glad you have the approach life element of it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I will say ministry of the future, not a shocker there. Very cool. I'm sure like most of your readers or your listeners have read this. I just think it's very cool to read that book and imagine how if you're running a business or thinking about how would this future be different if my company were here doing in, in this version of, of his reality or you know, likely near-term reality. So really mm-hmm. love that book. Such an interesting thought experiment. We actually did a book book club on it at Club oh, cool. It's um, a long one. It is long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to say I've got I got through I think three quarters of it. So I deserve an award. I mean what's really <laughs> cool about it is that you learn something at each yeah. like each chapter. It's like its own little like, oh that's I yeah. didn't know about that solution or that problem. Yeah. Um all right, I'm gonna say Gilead by uh Marilyn Robinson. I don't know if you have you read this book? No. It is unlike any book I've ever read, like the experience of reading it. It feels much like meditating, I, I will say. And I think it, um, it is, it's basically about a priest in Iowa who's dying and has had a family latent life and reflecting on his life in this um, really beautiful and intentional way that helps you really think about the ways to appreciate and just even understand kind of what's happened to you and process what's what's going on and um i'd say probably the even more compelling pitch than my kind of philosophic wanderings are that um barack obama when he was a sitting president um interviewed one person whom he interviewed not was interviewed by and he mm. was the author of this book while mm. he was the president uh, wow. so pretty cool and powerful um, and then I think um, John Lewis's book, um, his um, autobiography, Walking with the Wind, about his um, legacy and his really his tactics in the civil rights movement. And I think really just his, the spirit that he brought to what must have been an incredibly difficult experience that requires so much conviction to persevere, I think is the one of the most powerful descriptions of grit for what you believe in and what kind of the long-term vision you want to create that I've really ever, ever seen. Hmm. Great. Awesome. And so what are three early stage startups yeah. in climate that you love and want everybody else to know about? Yeah. Okay. This is, this is a difficult part of saying only, only three. So, but I got them. Uh, so near space labs, uh, stratospheric, a balloon imaging company uh, mm. figure out how to take 10 centimeter pictures of uh, of Earth. Um, it's just the difference between the difference when you get to that resolution is just really obvious and and mm. visible. And 
Cloud Street itself has really benefited, was really possible by this huge boom in Earth imaging. Um, mm -hmm. We use you know, dozens of different types of satellites and ways of viewing Earth, and that's one that we're incredibly excited about and working mm -hmm. with. Um, here in the U.S. with the government, and and the, and the um, CEO there, Rima, is just uh, very pretty awesome. Cool. Very, yeah. yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, so another company called Raincoat, um, that's mm -hmm. an insure tech company based out of um, Puerto Rico, and have just for a really small company have figured out how to create um, really innovative. It's called embedded products inside of really large organizations. So they do a lot mm -hmm. of this kind of stuff that we're talking about, where you will offer some kind of insurance or debt relief product inside of an existing insurance product or just on top of another banking product you're providing to loan holders. And I think embedding these kinds of things throughout the large financial institutions across the globe is essential. And it's just really cool to see such a, you know, it's kind of a company like that punching above our weight, their weight. So work with them a lot. And then um, Acloma is a company that, we don't do any direct work with, but I've always been really inspired by them. They are basically the cars that drive around in order to take um, air quality measurements. And they're using this for um, both air quality and then greenhouse gas um, emissions. And I think the way that they've just enabled this kind of funky technology to just embed within the, just become regular practice within the U.S. government is really um, inspiring. And I think it's a really cool public-private partnership example that we're excited about uh, learning from. Awesome. Well, before you go on vacation, are there any final thoughts you want to live, leave listeners with? Yeah. I mean, I think the fundamental thing is what we've been talking about here is just that the, how possible adaptation is. And we've shied away from this so much in the name of like, let's mitigate the problem. But mm -hmm. the reality is that we're pretty good as a society of increasing our ability to absorb loss now. And it's more important than ever. And in many ways, it's a more hopeful future because we have the solutions, whether they're zoning, infrastructure, and the financial instruments today, and the money today to adapt to this thing. And so the thing I have to leave folks with is it's, it's much more hopeful than you would think yeah. um, and much okay. more hopeful. We're, we're going to make it. We're going to adapt. And <laughs> if we do it, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time and cheers. Enjoy your holiday and vacation. And I'm almost done with this beer. Well deserved. Mm -hmm. Likewise, Matt. All right. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. The resources that we mentioned and everything else we talked about, drink recipes, various people, companies, so on and so forth, will all be linked on the show notes on our mothership's website at clematechcircle.com. If you want to write us, our address is m at clemetechcocktails.com. You could follow us on Twitter at ct underscore cocktails and on Instagram at hashtag clemetechcircle. You can reach me personally by carrier pigeon on my LinkedIn at forward slash Matthew J. Myers or at one of our in-person happy hour events. In the meantime, keep the dream alive and do your part to make the world a better place for 100% of humanity. And thanks for tuning in. Cheers.